a lot of excitement. I'm just thinking, I know this can lead somewhere, but I would say my failure rate was about 80%. So <laughs> it was frustrating at times until I got to a point where I realized, what does failure actually mean? What is success? And then realizing sometimes what you think conventionally would be failure could actually be success in art making terms. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this podcast, I'll be talking to Leora Faber, Associate Professor and Director of the Visual Identities in Art and Design Research Center, Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture at the University of Johannesburg. Under Leora's leadership, the center has become a vibrant hub where an international community of visiting professors, research associates, and postdoctoral fellows have conducted interdisciplinary research over the last 15 years around the themes of African and African diasporic histories and identities with visual practice and questions of representation at the center of their investigations. Recently, Leora has opened up a new thematic current at the center, exploring the connections between art, design, and the life sciences. She's doing this through a biolab, which she's due to launch in 2023. We'll be investigating in this conversation all these aspects of her work with Viad in the podcast. In addition to directing the Viad Center, Leora is an artist, academic editor, curator, and postgraduate supervisor. She obtained a BA Fine Art at the University of the Witwatersrand, followed by an MA Fine Art cum laude, also from BITS, and then a DPhil in Visual Art at the University of Pretoria. She's exhibited both nationally and internationally with works that deal with the concerns of the body, abjection, embodiment, and activities strongly associated with women's work and domestic objects. It is a strongly feminist thematic which she has pursued since her first performance installation entitled A Room of Her Own at the Premises in Johannesburg in 2006. In this discussion, we explore Leora's personal trajectory and education as an artist and her early practice as a lecturer in fine arts. We look for the reasons for the establishment of the Visual Identities and Art and Design Research Center at the University of Johannesburg in 2007 we explore the vision that Leora had for the center and the ways in which the planned research has actualized. We then discuss the important colloquium on making, integrating approaches to practice-led research in art and design that Leora organized at Viad in 2009. The colloquium was the first gathering to explicitly explore the impact and implications of practice-led research in the South African context, but also brought a wide range of European perspectives into the conversation. We then examine Leora's move into an engagement with bioart, her initial collaboration with bioscientists at the University of Johannesburg, and her residency in 2019 on the Symbiotica program at the University of Western Australia. We explore whether bioart is a break with the concerns articulated by the work at Viad, or if it takes these concerns further into the ambit of post-humanist and new materialism, and we ask what implications this work has for the decolonial project. Leora, welcome. 
It's a great pleasure to be able to sit down and talk to you. So much has been happening on your side, and I'm still entranced with the memory of your most recent exhibition that was at FADA, The Intimate Presences, Effective Absences, or The Snake Within, which was, I think, your first exhibition of bio-art. So we'll definitely get into looking at that exhibition and your approach to bio-art in much greater detail later in this podcast. But I just wanted to recognize that. It was it was really a wonderful and most unusual exhibition. Leora, your personal trajectory, just as a way of leading us into the discussion, what was your first encounter with art and what led you to take up art as you did, your studies, your postgraduate work, and your first steps into artistic practice. Okay, well, I guess as a kid, I enjoyed drawing, painting, etc. And my mother was quite ambitious, and anything that I showed any signs of potential for, she would take me to classes. So I got taken to extramural art classes right up until ending school. And after one year of doing French at high school, decided that was definitely not for me and went on to take up art at school. And then after matric, was faced with a kind of decision that I had to make, and it was quite a life-affecting decision, because I had also been trained as a classical pianist. And so I had a choice. I was either going to go into music and I'd become a concert pianist, or if it was a teaching profession or so on, or carry on with the idea of making a career in the arts. And yes, I chose art, chose to go to Wits at the time. It was the early 1980s, I think. And yeah, completed my undergraduate and master's degree at Wits, after which I started to teach at what was then the Technikon Wittwagesrand. That was a very long time ago. And I taught there for many years before it became University of Johannesburg. So at that time, it was quite interesting because there were very little opportunities for someone graduating with a master's degree out of art school to actually have a job. You know, there were very few jobs available to us. Um, It is very unlike the situation that I'm seeing with my students at the moment, where there are all kinds of opportunities and avenues that are being opened all the time that are quite innovative and fresh and certainly opportunities that can be created, you know, that that didn't exist before in the cultural sector. Whereas at the time that I graduated from my master's, nothing like that existed. It was a very, very um, kind of boxed in system that the, the, the only job you could really get was lecturing. You know, um, and so, yeah, lectureship posts were absolutely fought for. And that it was taken that, you know, if you aren't wanting to or can't make a living out of your artwork, you would teach and make art on the side kind of thing. And then with the launch of UJ and the integration of the art side of Technicon Witwatersrand into FADA, the Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture at UJ. You, in 2007, launched VIAD, the Visual Identities in Art and Design Research Centre. Why did you start such a centre? 
Well, to be honest, I didn't start the center. <laughs> it was an initiative of UJ's at the time. It was about 2000 and yeah, it was 2006, 2007, where they had very few research centers established in the institution. And they established six new research centers in a drive to become a more research intensive institution. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with the merger because you know, the Technicon historically was vocational training and not necessarily theoretically or academically orientated. And Rao had a problematic history of having a kind of one-sided way of approaching academia. So in its kind of reinvention of itself, UJ started these six new centres in a bid to try and stimulate particular kinds of research in particular areas. And in art and design, well, it was largely my choice, I suppose. I wasn't dictated or told what to do, but I felt that practice-led research was an area that needed development in the South African cultural landscape and wanted to make that the primary focus of the centre. And then in 2009, two years into the centre's existence, you took that focus on practice-led research into an international colloquium, the on-making colloquium. Right. It feels like a very long time ago. Yes, it was very much part of the time. It was part of actually my trying to come to terms with what does practice-led research actually mean and how would it be applied in the context of VIAD. And out of that arose a whole myriad of other questions because practice-led research at that stage was really a very fledgling idea in South Africa. You know, I think there was a lot of confusion around what it might mean, how it might be applied in institutions, if there was a particular approach and if it meant working in a very particular way and the contested relationship between theory and practice. And all these ideas were kind of floating around. And also universities were just beginning to establish practice-led visual arts degrees. I think I think University of Pretoria was one of the first. And I myself at that time was looking around to do a practice-led PhD. And so found that, you know, this was a very new enterprise in South African institutions. And really, actually, the only one that I found at the time was the one at UP. Others were very fledgling. UCT had spoke a little, WITS had spoken a little about it, but nothing had seemed to have been concretized. And UP was actually the only one that had an accreditation for a practice-led PhD. So yeah, I think it also came out of personal practice in the sense that my version, let's say, it's not the version, it's my version of what I understand practice-led research to be. And that for me, ever since my master's and even earlier, is looking at a very close relationship between theory and practice, the intersections between the two and the way that the one can inform the other. However, if pressed to say what the starting point would be, I would say it would always be the artwork, it would be the making process. But finding that the making process in conjunction with theoretical readings, 
and then taking those theoretical readings back into the artwork in a kind of cyclic unfolding manner worked very well for me. And obviously I realized that's a personal approach. It's not one that would work for everybody, but I found it particularly, for me, it was a very productive way to work. And so I thought that because Feared was focusing so strongly on visual identities in art and design, the visual needed to be our starting point. So in other words, Unlike other research centers where usually theoretical points of discussion might be a starting point, for Veard, I felt it was important that, in fact, the work itself, the artwork, is the starting point. And everything that comes out of that is the research that follows, and that the artwork itself is the research as well, so that they're completely integrated and that vision that you began with of Veard as research based on the visual, on the making of visual artifacts itself, how has that changed through experience? Because we now talk Veard's been in existence for more than a decade. 15 years. <laughs> Congratulations. And how would you say your vision has changed through experience or has your vision been reinforced by these 15 years of experience? What have you learned from running a research center that was based on the making of visual artifacts and the artifacts themselves? Well, having gone through quite a few different phases in the center, I think that I feel even more convinced now, 15 years later, that this is the right way for Veard to be approaching its research, that, that this is a very useful or important way to go about research in the arts. I always felt, you know, we work in a way that is kind of a triangular system without, <laughs> without a hierarchy, if you like. So starting with the work, the making of the work, and the exhibition, usually starting, you know, by the time Veard gets to that point, it's at the exhibition stage. And from there, developing discourse around the work itself, around the exhibition itself, usually in the form of a kind of conversational format, be it a conference or a gathering or a workshop, where people actually speak about the work and use the work and the issues that are coming out of it or being read out of the work as a starting point. And from there, developing those issues that are being spoken about, often from personal experience, lived experience, and relating those to more theoretical concepts in writing. And that would usually then finally take the form of publication, articles in journals, book chapters, etc. But at the same time, I don't want it to sound like a linear structure. It isn't actually. Each point feeds off the other. And so you might get to a publication and that publication leads you to another kind of exhibition that you actually want to start exploring. So yeah, it's, it's a very interrelated, interdispersed kind of enmeshing of these different activities. And your 2009 colloquium, which is, I must say, has been quite 
valuable reference point for me in trying to develop artistic research at WITS. And we can talk about terminology. But what came out of that colloquium? I mean, you work quite closely with Finnish artist academics. I noticed that your major paper was with Finnish Marit McKellar. And what was that relationship and what came from the colloquium? Did the colloquium advance your understanding of practice-led research? I think it complicated it. <laughs> I think it definitely complicated it. <laughs> I might have been a little naive in thinking that perhaps my approach of the relationship between theory and practice was practice-led research, you know. And I came out of there quite surprised or interested to see the amount of different approaches that can fit under that heading. And as you say, Krista, you're talking about terminology. There's practice-based, practice-led research. Yeah. And what also struck me at the time was how our understanding as South African artists and the artistic community had such incredibly varied views about what practice-led research might be. I mean, I'm just using that term because that's what the conference was called. And that views differed widely. And this was also at a time when the DOE was still had not fully accepted creative research, creative outputs or creative production as research. And there were actually people at the conference from the NRF and from the DOE who were there. And it was also a way of introducing these ideas to them for further exploration towards the idea of setting up the policy which we now have of creative production as research. Um, but the NRF, interestingly enough, even at that time, had recognized creative production as research. Um, and so there was a, a discrepancy between the DOE's definition of research and that of the NRF. I think it was largely just trying to get a lay of the land, if you like, you know, just to try and see where are we in this very complex and sometimes difficult kind of terrain, and how are we going to navigate our way through it? What does it mean? Because it was so new in South Africa. The fact is that PLR at that stage had already been around in Europe, particularly Finland. I think it began at the Alto School of Art and Design in Finland, which was like 30 years before that, and had been taken up as a model in various art schools across the UK, each of which had their own approach. So it wasn't like a standard kind of formula that this is what PLR means. And if you do a PLR degree, this is what the outcomes are going to be. Many schools across the UK had very different models. And it was interesting to hear in the conference differences between, let's say, the UK model and the model that Marit Makela presented from the Alto School of Art and Design. The Otto School of Art and Design, yes, I visited there a couple of times, I presented papers, is quite remarkable in that it is a complete art school that takes a practice-led approach and I think was one of the, the pioneers in that field. Yes, as we know, particularly in Europe, the initiative did come from art schools and 
was very much linked to developments in the EU higher education system as well. If I think of entities like the Zurich University of the Arts, Vienna University of the Arts, Vienna University of the Applied Arts, and they were in a situation where suddenly they had to address the need for a final level of PhD education and were meeting that. And what interested me in your summary, that collaborative paper you wrote with McKellar, you identified three trends in practice-led research. And interestingly, the last trend, which was the most problematic and that you seemed most tentative about, was using practice-led research within the university context to gain recognition for a very different kind of research, an artistic research or practice-led research that didn't model itself on scientific versions of the research trajectory, but that was an opening up to different modes of epistemological inquiry using the artifact or the making of the artifact. And you also, I thought very intriguingly, dropped hints in that summary that in many ways, this was potentially allied to the impact of feminism on the Western University. Let's take that main point, that third trend, which I think you would agree with me is where practice-led or artistic research offers the most radical challenge to the structure of knowledge that's currently hegemonic in the Western University. And that is recognition of other modes of knowing. Correct. Other modes of knowing through lived experience, through bodily experience, through more haptic kinds of experience, through the making, the actual practice of making, and not the final output itself or the data that gets collected in the making. So yes. Look, I also found myself in a position with Viad taking a practice-led approach that I often had to defend that approach. You know, at that time, it was not readily accepted by, you know, sort of higher levels in the institutions, particularly people in the sciences and so on. And so it was challenging, in fact, and became something that actually had to be really, in a way, fought for, pushed at institutional levels. And I'm sure UJ was not the only institution at which that had to happen. What were the challenges that you faced from parts of the institution that were resistant? Simply being told making art is not research. Forget it. You know, <laughs> It's just as simple as that. I mean, all the cliches came up. You know, my, making art is a fun activity. It's a therapeutic activity. It's nice and it's pretty and it's decorative and lovely things to have in your home. But it doesn't have content, you know, please. You know? <laughs> and of course, if it doesn't have content, it's not research. And of course, if you haven't consulted all the right texts and used the right methodologies and structured your argument in a particular way, how could it possibly be research? I think the thing that really made people wary and afraid was how do we assess this new beast? How do we actually evaluate? Is it research? If we say it is, how does it get classified as that? What criteria do we use? 
And so, yeah, I think a lot of resistance came from kind of fear factor, in a sense, of just not knowing how to deal with this brand new animal. And you, in your own practice, have actually moved into this fascinating field of bio-art, which is taking artistic practice, if I could put it this way, into the very heart of a recognized science, biological sciences. And could you talk about that, and particularly your residency at the Symbiotica Lab, which I think it's important to stress is an arts research lab set up in a biological, a life sciences department. So can you tell us a bit more about Symbiotica and in particular your residency there, your experience of that? Okay. Well, it is in the School of Anatomy, Biology and Anatomy, but Symbiotica is a unit, a center that doesn't define itself as art or science, but the combination of art and science. So I don't think they see themselves as a scientific institution in any particular way. In fact, I think they would probably be more art orientated. Yes, but they provide a space like many, many bio-art institutes, centers, labs across the world now, where artists can come in, have access to scientific equipment, be trained in scientific procedures and practices, and basically use those. Perhaps one might choose to use them in the conventional ways. You might choose to follow the rules, as it were, the scientific rules to make an artwork. But there's also the freedom to completely break those rules and do, you know, <laughs> completely unexpected things. And for me, that's what happened actually during my residence at Symbiotica. I was very privileged. I was given access to work in a PC2 microbiology lab and was fully trained in all the correct protocols and so on. But I think I gave them quite a lot of headaches because try as I did to stick to the rules, basically, which are very strict and very defined, I found myself breaking the rules all the time. And that, for me, is what artistic practice was about. What were the rules? These are the strict protocols of a microbiology lab. You know, they are very, very set things that you can and cannot do to prevent contamination. So you're working with live organisms, you're working with pathogenic organisms. And obviously, that poses a terrible health risk. And so there are very strict protocols in place that are designed specifically to keep the space of the lab and everything that is in it 100% sterile. So it's about that difference between contamination and sterility. And how did you find yourself breaking those rules? <laughs> Partially ignorance. <laughs> you know, I did things which to me seemed perfectly normal, but apparently were very, very not allowed. Stupid things like I spilt water on the floor and I didn't think that was a big deal. But apparently in a PC2 lab, that is very not a good thing to do. It's not, it's not good for the sterility of the space. So a lot of it was inadvertent. I really didn't know that small things that I thought, you know, wouldn't count, did count so much. And then a lot of it was about the art making process, which I found it very interesting to have to still work within these protocols of containment and sterility 
but be creative at the same time. And that's where I think I kind of gave the microbiologists around me quite a bit of a, they got a bit nervous because I kept doing things that they'd never seen being done with the materials before. And it was like, but you can't do that. And I was saying, but like, why not? <laughs> you know, they say you put agar into petri dishes to grow bacteria. And I'm saying, well, that's fine. But why can't I try and pour agar into a bowl and make a cast of a bowl and then paint my bacteria in there? And, you know, there was this kind of looking at me like, you know, she's a bit funny. So for me, the fascination was being creative and experimental and innovative within very strict protocols and procedures that were actually set. So not breaking those, but actually doing things that were not accepted within scientific kind of practice. So had that lab, the scientists and the technicians in that lab, had they not worked with an artist before? They only worked with one artist before. You see, with the way Symbiotica works is they have a small lab, but it's mostly based on tissue culture. And I was not really wanting to work with tissue culture. It's very finicky. I wanted to work with bacteria. And so they, they kind of outsourced me to work in a macrobiology lab. I was pretty much working in a space where artists hadn't worked before. There had been one postdoc who had worked in that space and did some amazingly creative work. But I think I was the second person. So they were not all that familiar with artists and their more experimental approaches to things. Okay. So explain to us how you approach, what did you have in mind when you came into the lab? As you say, agar was a material that was available, bacteria was the active agent. What were you bringing into that process in terms of your broad plans for what you wanted to achieve? I actually started working with bacteria and agar before I did the residency in Symbiotica. I had collaborated with the director of the Water and Health Centre in the Faculty of Health Sciences at UJ, Prof. Tobias Barnard. And that also has its history. It came out of earlier work that I did using bacteria and yeast, which is the work that you mentioned earlier on the Intimate Presences show. And after doing that work, I was so fascinated by this whole process. I wanted to actually find ways of seeing how I could work with other organisms. So I approached Prof Barnard and he was very enthusiastic. And I did quite a lot of preliminary work in his lab on the Dornfontein campus beforehand, but it was very, very preliminary. So in other words, it was just limited to Petri dishes and I would draw with bacteria into the Petri dish. And at that time, I mean, I found that fascinating, but I went to Symbiotica with this express intention of finding ways in which I could push that work further. It seemed to me rather pointless to do work there that I could already do in South Africa, you know, work that I knew how to do already just seemed pointless. You know, why go to specialized center for art and science collaboration and just repeat the knowledge that you have? So it was essential for me personally to see how far I could push the boundaries, taking what I had gathered from Prof. Tobias's lab and seeing how far that could be developed. And what did the Australian lab 
provide that you didn't have back at Dunfontein campus? Actually, nothing. You know, a microbiology lab is a microbiology lab. They're equipped in the same ways. But I suppose it's just simply the freedom and the time, you know, because I was on sabbatical. I had five months, whereas when I was working in Johannesburg, I'd only have a few hours. So I'd only be able to go in and do a little bit of work. But in terms of facilities, there's nothing different. It was not as if they could give me specialized facilities. But it was also very much a learning curve in that I had to literally do and learn and find out and do everything. It was like a crash course in microbiology. Let's put it that way. I went through accelerated learning. And what was your artistic aim that you brought to the lab after your preliminary work in Johannesburg. What was your aim when you went into the lab and went through this accelerated learning in biochemistry? I didn't have a predetermined aim. I knew I wanted to push the boundaries of what I already knew, which was very little. I knew that I wanted to do something that possibly... It's a big statement to make. I wouldn't say it hadn't been done before, but it was, how can I put it, not conventional. And so it also involved a lot of research, researching into bioartists, their practices, what had been done in the field, what exhibitions had been put up, what different people were doing. And Symbiotic was useful in that sense in that they had a complete repository of all that information. So there was a kind of investigative side as well to see what had been done and that I wasn't necessarily just repeating or drawing on things that other people had already explored. So with that knowledge, what did you then set out to do in your project in the lab? Well, I drew on the work that I had done previously here in South Africa, and that's the work that you were referring to earlier on the Intimate Presences show, where I worked with, you can call them skins. It's actually cellulose fiber that grows from a culture of bacteria and yeast, and it feeds off sugar and tea. And it forms like a, literally like a skin, jelly-like skin on the top of the surface of the tea. Um, And I, I had been using those skins to make impressions of domestic objects, very particular chosen domestic objects that referred to South African, Dutch and English colonial histories. And so in Australia, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. I wanted to build on what I had already done with the skins work, but find other ways of translating those into new media and then seeing what could come out of that. And what ways did you find and what did you see coming out of it? Huge, huge amounts of experimentation and failure. Okay, (laughs) I can only put it like that. You're working with agar because that is the material that the microbes grow on. It's got nutrients in it. And agar is like jelly. You know, it's like a slightly more solid form of jelly. So I think if you can imagine trying to make a cast of an object out of jelly and then remove the jelly shape or form from the object itself, um, how tricky that could be. 
yeah, it was a completely learning curve. <laughs> There's another world. Um, and the fact is you can't touch the agar while you're working because your hands are not, not sterile. Even if you wear gloves, it's not sterile. So you've got to find all these strange ways of working that you actually do not touch the agar object as you're trying to work with it, basically, which is incredibly challenging because I had to think in a way that was quite different to the more spontaneous way in which maybe I would work as an artist using any other material. I had to be logical. I had to be very rational and think to myself, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to get the cast out of there <laughs> without the agar breaking and splitting and you know, the whole thing collapsing. So it posed these kind of intellectual challenges or kind of logic challenges that I had to deal with as well. A lot of excitement. I'm just thinking, I know this can lead somewhere. I know this can go somewhere. But I would say my failure rate with those casts was about 80%. So <laughs> it was frustrating at times, very frustrating. Until I got to a point where I realized, what does failure actually mean? What is success? Um, is success getting a perfect cast or a perfect impression out of agar of an object, of a bowl, let's say? Is that success? Or is success maybe getting fragments of a bowl? You know, the bowl that broke. Is that necessarily failure? And then realizing, no, it's not. Sometimes what you think conventionally, in conventional terms, would be failure, could actually be success in art-making terms. Once I realized that, it gave me a lot more freedom. Then I didn't mind if the object broke, if the agar split. It was also very interesting in that it was an experience that I couldn't control. In other words, if the agar split while I was trying to take the object out the bowl, well, that's what happened. You know, I, I, it was not within my control. And the same with the bacteria. It took me a long time to realize bacteria, pigmented bacteria is not paint. It's not paint. And being a painter, I tended to just think, oh, well, here's this colored substance. And yes, I'll paint it in and it will render that design or whatever I have articulated. Far from it. It took a while to learn that bacteria are live organisms that have a life of their own. They have a life agency of their own. So you can try and make them do certain things. You could try and paint the image of something, a flower or a person or something. But if the bacteria decide not to follow <laughs> the lines that you have delineated, well, that's their decision. You know, they do what they do, basically. They live. You've spoken of the bacteria in this kind of bio-art as a collaborator rather than a medium. Exactly. It took me a while to learn this. It really was part of the learning curve. That, in fact, I, as the artist, was not in control. I had lost all artistic autonomy. And that's quite a thing when you've been used to working your entire life with what is really inert media, media that you are manipulating and controlling. And all right, it might do its own thing, but you're still the agent in the process. To find that, in fact, this was not about my autonomy. This was a collaboration, actually, between me and the microbes. They had as much agency as I did. And 
that agency could not be predicted either. That was also the thing. You know, you could think, okay, all right, they're going to grow. They probably, because of the nature of or what kind of bacteria they are, they're going to grow in a certain way. But no, <laughs> it, it didn't happen like that. They have their own yeah, minds of their own, and they did very unpredictable things. So I could never really tell what they were going to do in response to what I had done and vice versa. So it really was a collaborative kind of process. Mm. And that's something that one has to get used to. It's different. And the symbiotic residency, is there an expectation that you have a show at the end of it, that you present work? Not at all. So you didn't have to have a result that you could show? No. Actually, it was something of a difficult point because I came in with very different aims and objectives to what Symbiotica usually wants from their residents. They prefer that the artists in residence don't even try to produce anything at all, actually, that they do not go for a finished product or something that's going to constitute an exhibition afterwards or anything like that, but simply use the time and the facilities to experiment and try things, basically. And I think I was a bit of an anomaly in that I came there with very sort of the set idea that I was there in order to achieve something, a body of work, basically. And I think that's understandable, considering one is given a substantive amount of funding to be there, and it's one sabbatical time. So obviously, well, for me anyway, I wanted to get something meaningful and something substantive out of the experience. But my aims were definitely at odds with what Symbiotica wanted from its residences. Now, you've come back from Symbiotica, back to UJ, and you've actually set on establishing a biolab within FADA. How are you doing that? And what are your expectations for a biolab here at UJ in South Africa? Well, I came back and I was so incredibly excited about the work that I had done there. And was at first, I didn't know that it was possible for me to actually do the same work here in South Africa or at UJ. And then in speaking again to Prof Tobias, he said, well, there's absolutely no reason why you can't actually do what you were doing in one of his labs. And from his amazingly enthusiastic passion for art and creativity using microbes, we came up with the idea of starting a very small bio lab. You see, the reason for starting it as a separate bio lab for art and design is because although Prof Tobias has state-of-the-art facilities in his labs, as a scientist, there is no room allowed to play around, to actually experiment with anything. Everything has to be according to the correct protocols because that is the work that he's obviously doing. So it became an idea of a space in which we could play, both of us actually, just starting. You know, he wanted to play around. He had ideas of working with microbes. I wanted to carry on with the work I had been doing. And we were very privileged to be given a small space in the FADA Fab Lab, which 
yeah, I'm very pleased to say now finally, I think after two years, have set up and are actually working in the space and will probably do a soft launch of it early next year. And it is a fully equipped scientific microbiology PC2 lab that is dedicated to work to be done by artists and designers. And will it be open to students? Will you have residencies there? How do you see it functioning once it's launched? Both of those. At the moment, we're looking mostly at PhD students, postdocs, and artists in residence. We already have two artists in residence who are working in the lab. And at this stage, I think I would prefer to work with undergraduates in a space that is not a security hazard. I might do work with undergraduates that doesn't involve anything that is pathogenic, but for now, I think we can keep it at a higher level. And obviously, anybody that works in the lab has to undergo intensive training as to, again, those protocols and procedures. So it will be for artists in residence, PhD students, postdocs. I intend to appoint research associates, professors of practice to come out, just establish, it might be a small community, but definitely a community of practice around the bio-arts arena. Do you think the establishing a biolab in FADA is a move away from the concerns of VIAD? Actually not. On the surface, it might seem that way. I understand very well that people might say, yeah, VIAD has been dealing with identities, it's been dealing with critical racial you know, politics, it's been dealing with issues of representation for so many years. African and African diasporic representation particularly, how does bioart suddenly fit in into the overall rubric of the centre? And for now, that is why I want to keep the current research strand that we are working with, which is focused around African and African diasporic art against backgrounds of slavery, colonialism, apartheid, etc., and ways of reimagining what it might mean for different forms of blackness um, and existence. Keeping that as one focus area and starting the bioart as a second focus area in VIAD. And I think that's just a purely practical thing at the moment. It's not necessarily that the two are not related conceptually. There are definitely conceptual links which can be drawn. And this is an interesting point, you see, because people often confuse bio-art with the medium. It's like saying video art. Video is a medium. It's almost like saying painting. You know, painting's a medium. It's not a concept. <laughs> so when you know people use the term bio-art, it's actually quite a contested one because it only talks about medium. It does not talk about meaning or the conceptual thought around what using living material could mean. And I think that's one sticking point where people tend to think, oh, but these are two different things completely. But actually they're not. Bioart is as much about identity and about uh, relationship between human and so-called non-human or human slash non-human, living slash non-living, and our relationship to the environment and to living organisms that are not 
considered human and very much about breaking down those kinds of hierarchical distinctions between human and not human. And in so doing, in breaking down those hierarchical distinctions, you've got a breaking down of the binary opposites, the Cartesian binary opposites of, you know, sort of man, woman, um, nature, culture, and all of the rest. Um, so what it effectively does is it relates very closely to post-humanism and new materialist feminist thinking in that it decenters the white heterosexual male as the center of the universe who is in control of nature or in control of everything that goes in the list that follows below him. So it is very much about a break, a different kind of identity, and that being one that is not based on speciesism, but one based on kindred relationships and symbiotic relationships, intermeshed relationships with the living world. Yora, you've put it very well <laughs> and have certainly gone a long way towards answering some of my questions about bioart and how bioart fits in with the larger political concerns that I think we here in South Africa are very conscious of. And, and it sometimes seemed to me bioart is a way of bypassing those concerns. But the way you've described it, bioart is central to undermining and upturning the kind of hierarchical knowledge and status systems that are fundamental to the experience of colonialism, apartheid, etc. That's exactly what I was going to say. In that sense, I see it as a decolonial practice. Yes, it completely undermines the colonial logic or the colonial discourse of hierarchical relationships and speciesism and so on, and offers a different way of being in the world, a different way of relating to human and natural environment. And of course, in our context, you know, with climate change and so on, this is one of the most pressing issues that we really have to confront. One point on that, I think that a lot of people have a misconception about bioart because they see it as fascinating, like, oh, look at what you can do with blood, or oh, look what you can do with microorganisms. But that is purely its seductive value. You know, that's looking at it on a very surface way and saying, oh, look what you can do with this you know, fabulous new medium, but not seeing it beyond that. Laura, thank you very much. You've definitely opened up certainly my thinking about seeing beyond that initial and superficial fascination with this new medium of biological art. So I wish you all the best and we'll be watching the establishment and the way you go forward with the Biolab and continue to go forward with Vierd. Thank you for making the time. Thank you so much, Krista. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Prof. Leora Faber, the Director of the Visual Identities and Art and Design Research Center in FADA Faculty at the University of Johannesburg. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself with technical production by Elna Schutz. 
It was funded by the Mellon Foundation as part of their support for Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Lee Rosevier and is used under a Creative Commons license.